Is, didn't didn't you just describe the Doctor Who episode that way too? <laughs> she didn't. What? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Do you want to do the introduction? No, you do it. You're better at it than I am. Y- yeah, really. Uh, I don't know. What you do it more? I I don't. Do you guys even have like a theme song? Like, let's do some damage. We we have now. Okay, well, I think that's our beginning then. So, uh, it's a Do Some Damage podcast, and we have Dave White with us. Good uh, to be here. It's been, a, it's been like a year since you were on the show. I know, I haven't done it in a while. I'm never free when you guys are doing it, because you have those wacky hours. What the hell have you been doing for the past year? I got married. Wow. But you did too. This is true, yeah. Was yours planned? Was it an accident? Did you just trip? No, I didn't trip, but uh, it, was, it was pretty planned. There was a lot of planning. But yeah, so you were last, actually I've checked, and I think it was March of last year that you were last on, and we talked about, like, James Bond. Yes. Um, I drank some bourbon. So you've, uh, you, you've had two releases since then. Morrison and Against, which is my old Jackson Dunn stories, and Witness to Death, which is my new thriller. So it's just come out now on, on Kindle and Nook uh, and any other shiny thing that you can think of. And I might send up smoke signals with the text in it for everybody to read. Uh, so you can just get it from the, the Amazons or the, the million links that I've no doubt Weddle will be putting up every other minute on, on Twitter and on DoSomeDamage.com. Um, yes, he's good at that. Before we talk about the, 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 the book, um, let's have a quick, look at the, a quick talk about the, the collection, because that's been right. out for a little while now. Yes. Uh, so this was um, collecting the first seven Jackson Don stories. Is it se- yeah seven? There's one that one short story that didn't make it to the collection because it was in print and uh, I didn't know what the rights were. It's a gray area, isn't it? Yeah, and I was lazy, <laughs> too lazy to find out. <laughs> um, it's just uh, I mean I've, I've had a read th- a read back through it recently um, on the uh, well the Kindle app because I'm lazy. I don't have a Kindle, right. um, and I was just. It, it was good. It was kind of watching your, your your writing voice kind of come out in real time. Um, you've got your first story, which was, you know, it, it was a well-written PI story, but then suddenly by the time you get to the second story, it was like you'd got a voice. Um, did you notice that as, uh, as you were going I, along? Yeah, I think there was like two years in between. The first story I wrote in college for a creative writing class, mm-hmm. and uh, the professor said it was good enough to submit to mystery places so i saw that thrilling detective the website kevin burton smith's website was um asking for a submission so i sent it there and then i don't know i was still in college another year or so and i didn't write much more and then when i got out i uh, so it was like two years probably that i wrote the second story which is where the title comes from more sinned against and i guess just writing for myself and my thesis was a, a creative novel Mm-hmm. It was a Jackson Dunn novel. Um, I guess the voice kind of came from there. That year of writing the novel had a lot of figuring things out. I think the other thing is that but kind of a, a change in between the two. I mean, the first one starts straight out, obviously, with the uh, the child abuse 
um, kind of throwing straight into that in the first couple of pages. Right. Um, the second story, more sinned against, it's it's more. Um, I don't want to say it's small is the wrong word, but it's more kind of personal. It's more, you know, about kind of the the town and the the, the socio economic background of what was going on and this old guy and you know their past and all of that was that something again that you just found that your voice had, had gone from one to the other or did that just change story to story for you i think it changed story to story i think more syndicates was I, like i said the town it takes place in new brunswick was the town i went to college in mm-hmm. and it was almost like a love letter to the town as i was leaving i wrote it the year after i got out of college and i didn't live there anymore and you know i still went down but i didn't go down to New Brunswick all the time. So it was the kind of thing where, you know, I loved the town and, and wanted to not lose the feeling of it. Right. So that's where that came out of and, and knowing the different parts of the town that weren't the college, you know, mm-hmm. and trying to see that city, I should say, but you know, whatever the difference. Is. And then obviously the third story in the collection um, is the one that kind of got you the, the, uh, the Derringer. Yes. Um, there's no way to, you can't even say this one's it's big or small. You're writing against the backdrop of obviously something huge. Yeah, it's um, the it's nine eleven. Yeah. Did you sit down and think I need to write a story about how I feel about this, or did you sit down and write a story and then along the way you realised, oh, this is this is where that's going? It was definitely I need to write a story about how I feel about this because I needed to get my feel. That, I wrote that story for myself. I was never going to send it anywhere. Mm. It sat on my computer for probably three or four months as a draft. And then I showed it to my mother and father um, just because it was done. And, you know, I wanted to see if I wrote something good or, or not just to get an opinion. And my father and mother both said it was the best thing I had written that they had read. And they said, you got to submit it. And again, Thrilling Detective seemed like the place. Gerald So was head editing there and Kevin was helping out. And they really, we, the three of us worked on it. Like you wouldn't believe, cut stuff out. There was a bar fight in that story at the beginning. It was just a reaction to violence, mm-hmm. I think. But they they were smart enough to say the nine eleven stuff is the part you have to focus on, not how the whole world has changed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you kind of sum that up towards the end of the story, anyway. I mean, those, those last few lines kind of really, really crystallize that in terms of has the world changed? Has our day to day changed? You know. Whether you whether the the character realizes it or not, um, mm-hmm. so that, I mean that that was a really good achievement. I I felt. Um, did did that change the way you wrote? Did you learn anything out of that that gave you more confidence moving on to the uh, next stories? It was a different way of telling a PI story. I I think um, in my head, I don't know that it was. I hadn't been well read enough to know that it was actually completely different. But in it, Dunn is a spectator. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't, he tries once to get involved and it doesn't work out. You know, he's just kind of there watching this. And, um, I thought that was kind of an interesting way because most of the PI stuff I'd read Lahane and the Robert Parker books, the PI has his hand in the middle. He's pushing the action. And in this, it was like Dunn was watching and, and, uh, reacting, mm-hmm. which was how I had felt about nine 11, that I just watched the whole thing and there was nothing I could do. Yeah. But I think after that, I kind of looked at it as, okay, Dunn's kind of different now. He's he's probably going to be upset that he didn't react to this and that he felt like there was nothing he could do. So he might overreact um, next. Mm-hmm. And I think in the next two stories, he really does overreact. And they're both Thrilling Detective again, weren't they, at uh, first? Right. God's Dice was then republished in 
best mystery stories of the year book or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I like yeah. collections I like, like that. I've just come out in one. They're brilliant. Yes, you did. What was it called again? Uh, that was the uh, the Mammoth Book of Best British Crime, Volume Eight. Um, because you know, short titles are boring. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I just like hear. I listen to your uh, your podcast with the Doctor Who guy, and I just like hearing you say that title over and over. It takes up like ten seconds each time. I think Paul was kind enough to to edit out my my several um, miss attempts. <laughs> um, I think you can hear in the podcast. You can hear me laughing when I'm saying it, and that because that's literally like my fourth attempt at going the bed. That's perfect. <laughs> I, that one's too. I'll find it if that's what it's called. I'll find it. <laughs> but yes, so so that's out. Get my, get my nice little thing in there because you know this pod's all about me, really. Right, but you're with some cool people in there. It, it, um, Ian Rankin's in it, right? Uh, Ian's got two stories in it. That, um, that's why it's mammoth. Yes, Al. <laughs> uh, Alan Guthrie's in it. Yes, Al's got, I think, uh, the, the Turnip Farm, which is one of his best stories. Yes, I think I fantastic. can't help laughing at that one, even just thinking about it. <laughs> um, and, and Ray's in it, Ray Banks. Um, oh, Ray, so. Ray's short stuff. His novels are great, too, but his short stuff is fantastic. Always great to share a billing with him. He says, uh, you know, sharing a billing with him for the first time. And, and there's some other friends of Do Damage in it as well, like uh, Paul D. Brazil, Nigel Bird, um, getting in the act. It's, it's just... Nice company to be with. It's available in paperback and Kindle. Oh. Um, so, yeah, that's my section of plugging over. We should get back to talking about you. Oh, I like talking about me. <laughs> so when you've completed closure and you've looked back at how your, your PI has been, you know, he's kind of been doing the Indiana Jones thing of, you know, essentially being tied up and watching the art get opened. Um, right. And then he's overreacted. Um, you know, at what point were you deliberately playing with the PI? Um, I think closure was a deliberate playing with the PI. Um, I don't think get miles away and God's dice were deliberate in the overreaction, mm-hmm. uh, Dunn's overreaction. I think it fits nicely now looking back, but I was just trying to tell good stories with a, a character whose voice I really like, you know, and to be honest, before I started writing when one man dies, I kind of thought I might be finished with Dunn because I had given him so much baggage. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I might have wanted to start with a clean slate, and then it, luckily I found a story with When One Man Dies. But there was a lot going on there. Some of it feels really P.I. cliche still, looking back. There's stuff I'd like to change if I could. But some of it, I think, really stands out as short fiction, as, as taking – I'm always a fan of, of taking the hard answer. Yeah. You know, the unchangeable thing. Instead of, of resetting a, a person's life or a character's life. Yeah, you, you want to have cause and effect. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, you've, you're writing this, well, it's, it's got no consequences. Right. It's the, it's the Magnum P.I. example that I always hear. You know, like each week, Magnum's girlfriend we've never seen before is killed. So he could be <laughs> really pissed off for, you know, an hour and get revenge. And then the next week, he's got a new girlfriend that's suddenly in jeopardy. Yeah. You know, nothing lasts. And, and I prefer to watch characters that have lasting changes and, you know, get beat down and get back up. It's it's a fun thing, particularly in PI. And in a way, there's kind of before Scudder and after Scudder in terms of whether or not these things are going to add up with the character, whether, you, the, you know, they're, they're going to keep coming back and, and progressing. Um, are you thinking now, I mean, would you want to go back to that or are you... Are you Moving on now more into what we're about to talk about with your, your new book. Um, I haven't written done. I've tried a couple times, 
But I, I haven't written Dunn's voice or anything since the evil that men do. Nothing submittable. I'd love to go back to PI fiction. In fact, I, I have a PI story on submission right now. I sent that a co- to a couple places with a new PI. But I, I really haven't gone back to Dunn yet. That's not to say I wouldn't, mm-hmm. given the right opportunity. But I haven't been able to, I don't know. The end of the evil that men do feels like a nice place to leave it for a while. I suppose that can sometimes be the trap of sometimes of writing a you know a very good complete novel, in that you get to the end and you know it, it's very easy to leave the story there because you put so yeah. much into getting to that 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 ending. Yeah, I, and if I were to pick up Dunn again, it'd be two three years later, the the actual timeline of his life, which is about where we are now. And except what, he's going back to college. Uh, he's my age. Except he's going to college for the first time, and I'm. Far away. <laughs> do you prefer to write people who are around about your age, or do you like to, you know, look forward, look back? Uh, I like to write kids. Um, I it's hard for me to write forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the the book that I'm working on right now, the main characters are a little older than I am, and I'm having a lot of trouble with it in terms of revision. To the fact where I might make them, a, this might be a letting the cat out of the bag revision trick, but I might make them closer to my age. Because mm-hmm. I think writing for me, in a way, is not to say I'm, I'm really messed up, but it's a therapy. It's easy to work through the issues that I have in my life through the writing. Definitely. Like with, with Witness to Death was, was my breakup book. I started that book around the time I got dumped really badly. And that was my way of working through it. Of course, all my editor notes that came back about the breakup part scenes where stop being a, a wuss <laughs> this character is really wussy but uh you know it was it's it's a way to work through that stuff i don't know if you find the same thing but definitely Can't, hard to make the comparison because people haven't read my first book but yeah I, a lot of that was written um when going through a divorce and i think people would would then read the book and go oh right <laughs> um but yes you know absolutely I, I, I know what you mean the other thing that i'll tend to do is I can't write large fiction. I can't write, you know, as much as I keep trying. I can't write globe-spanning epic things. Mm. Um, but I can write, you know, small interpersonal scenes. So if I've, if there's something that's bugging me, like there was, you know, the treatment of, of Kurds in Turkey was, was really bugging me one day. Um, and I managed to get that into um, a PI story that, that hopefully will, will turn up in the second book um, mm. in my small local town. So, you know, take big issues and rather than try and tackle them as, as big issues, boil them down and find out what, what's the basic issue that's getting to you um, yeah. and put that into the story. Yeah, and I think you could do big stories with with small small settings, small people. I mean, the big story usually boils down to an emotion or a several emotions. Mm-hmm. That's what makes them have that epic feel. So, And speaking of this kind of contrast between... Big and little and, and, and emotional. Um, let's talk about the book. Okay. Uh, so it's called Witness to Death. Yes. Um, as, as you kind of alluded to there, you've, you've clearly had it on, on the hop for quite a while, been working at it for, for a long time. When did you first sit down to, to try and write it? I started writing. I wrote the first chapter, which turned out to be edited into the last couple of chapters. Um, the first chapter I wrote that's no longer in the draft, I wrote in February 2007. Right. Yeah, so four year, f- more than four years ago. And then I I, I kind of just jotted it down to keep the idea in my head as I was finishing up The Evil That Men Do. 
And then I started writing it pretty strongly in March 2008 after, you know, I was, you know, it was time to write something new. And that's what I got into it. And it took about, I guess it, it didn't go, didn't become completely finished where we were, Al and I were happy as it, how can I say this? Happy with it as a draft, as a finished draft or a finished book, mm-hmm. um, finished manuscript. I can come up with several different ways to say it um, until March or April 2010. So you figure a good two two years, two and a half years. And the idea had been boiling under for much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, one thing that we, we all want to kind of the, the deep and, and, and nasty subjects when it comes to writing is that, it's, you know, finished is never really finished in that you, f- you finish the first draft of your first book and you feel elated. And yes. then you send it out to the world or you let people read it and then you get an absolute kicking. And then you right. realize that you, you know, you're years away from this being a book. Um, I mean, how many times during that time were you thinking, you know, I'm, I'm there, I've done it. And then you think, oh, God, no. <laughs> uh, a lot. <laughs> I don't have a, a count. I, I thought I, I was very frustrated with myself because I would think I would be done and then I'd send it out and then the suggestions that came back were stuff I should have seen myself. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time seeing the trees through the forest with this book. I think seeing the trees in the forest, I I saw stuff. I didn't do a good job of rereading. I think I would be happy with it and think it was done and revised and revised. And I would know there'd be a tingle in the back of my brain going, something's not right. And when I would see what that was, you know, my agent was, incredibly patient with this book he was great with it the book is dedicated to him because he turned it he took story ideas and helped me form it into something that i think holds up pretty well and uh there was a lot of revision and i thought i was done the first draft of this story was a comedy wow yeah it was supposed to be like uh what's the coen brothers spy movie that just came out a couple years Uh, ago burn after reading Burn after reading. It was supposed to have that feel, and you know, it I just, can still kind of see that, but obviously with a very different tone now. Yeah, the tone completely changed. It's probably the darkest thing I've written, which I love. Now looking at it again, but originally I thought it was going to be lighthearted. It was something to get away from Jackson Dunn and to be kind of funny and fun, mm-hmm. and it just didn't. It couldn't turn out that way. If you follow the characters and who they are, there's no way it could be that way. Yeah, it takes place over a weekend. I mean, when you're talking about the kind of the difficulty of of balancing it all and of, of the difficulty of going back and rereading it and not knowing whether or not you've you've got the mix right, I can totally see it in terms of of the story that you're telling and in, uh, how that could happen because you're mixing, as we said earlier on, you know, you're mixing some very big ideas with some very personal ideas. Yeah. So it's going to be difficult to get that right. Just so the listeners have actually know what we're on about here, we should go into. Um, a bit about about what's going on with the story, what kind of a story that you're telling here. Right, I was just going to um, say that. There we go. Look, I was thinking the same thing. Um, but this book is so hard. It's very hard for me to boil down. But basically what it's about, and I wonder how you would summarize it after I'm done, is it's about a teacher, a 29-year-old teacher, who thinks his ex-girlfriend, who he's still kind of... Uh, likes, loves, whatever, his new boyfriend, Frank, is cheating on her. So one night after he has had a, an emotional, uh, emotionally tough night, 
he follows Frank to prove to her that uh, Frank is cheating on her. And when he follows Frank, he f- they end up down at the Hudson River and in a shootout with uh, what looked like five hitmen. And it turns into a spy story, basically, mm-hmm. with a teacher at the center of it. Usually when I tell people, I just say it's about a teacher who gets mixed up with terrorists. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the way that I described it on, on Twitter um, was kind of a gang war between um, Alfred Hitchcock and Charlie Houston. Um, I could see the Hitchcock stuff. Definitely. I mean, I, if, uh, For me, you, you summarized it perfectly. Um, but it, it is just that, that fun. If you've got the first chapter where it's one kind of story, particularly because... You're, you know, you're a known author, so someone will pick it up thinking um, Dave writes crime fiction. So you sit and read about this guy who's, you know, he's in a bad mood and he's thinking of following someone, and you think, I know what kind of a story I'm in here, um, but then you don't, and suddenly yeah. there's there's gunfire and there's possible terrorists and or hitmen or mobsters or spies. You don't quite know at that point. Um, yeah. And then you're often running into into the story, right? That was that's the thing that I think works really well about the first probably hundred pages of the book is how the original drafts didn't start out this way. It really built up to this, but I think now and rereading it when I was editing it, um, how confusing in a way how you're just thrown into it, and how you're with this character John, who's the teacher who's trying to figure out what's going on and how all these little bits and pieces are around him. And I think that's a lot of the fun of the first hundred pages of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, that's kind of my, you know, to get back to Doctor Who, they do such a good job of that, just throwing you in the middle of a story. You know, he just gets off the TARDIS and and you have to figure out along with him what the hell's going on. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of fun with a lot of stories. Definitely. Um I mean, I, th- I think that, and, and the Hitchcock thing complains so many ways because not only has it got that instant kick, you know, the, the thirty nine steps, the the north by northwest, any of these stories that are kind of, you know, take a an ordinary, slightly grumpy man from one kind of a story, a man who probably thinks he's in the middle of a romantic comedy, or you know, something like that, and then he realizes that he's in the middle of an espionage drama, um, right. But you've also got the the way that you just keep combining the sort of the totally mundane with the totally explosion stuff. I'm going to rephrase yes. that. Yes. <laughs> well, I love explosions. No, don't rephr- rephrase that because I love explosions. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, there's... I mean, I threw about every kind of weapon into this story that I could think of. There's guns, there's tasers, there's bombs, there's hand grenades, mm-hmm. you know. Which I mean, it, is all stuff I love. The tricky stuff is that some of the some of the best and most meaty issues of the book to really get into and discuss would ruin the the fun for the readers. Um, but I, I like how you like you play with relationships. You've got you know a certain kind of um, it's not quite a love triangle in the first couple of chapters, but you think you've got a grip on who these four people are and, and how they dance around each other, um, and then it changes. Um, and then you you know you find out is is that person who we think they are is that person who they think are and it it, it moves around a bit. Um, was that one of the challenges of writing it of, of of balancing that kind of little dancing act that they play? Yeah, I mean, just figuring out the only one I had a real handle on in the story is is the teacher is John, and through the different drafts, it was so much of figuring out who's doing what and who is what. Um, I try. I think at a point in 
each of the drafts, at least one of the villains I tried to make sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at one point in each of the drafts or suggested drafts, I nearly killed off each one of them. I killed off each one of the main characters and then decided that didn't work because um, there are, well, four main characters, I'd say. And yeah. I think in, in different drafts, different ones died. And, you know, just trying to find out who does what and who can survive what and, and how you get them out of certain situations and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and just figuring out who they are, mm-hmm. not in terms of who they are in the story, but who they've been, giving them some character depth and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you know? I think definitely the who they are. I mean, what I would wonder is that it's you, you can write as much you know, crazy explosions or gunfire as you want, but if, you, if you've if you not managed to make the reader either care about in some way or be interested in or at least feel like they know they have a grip on who the character on the page is, they're not going to follow the story. Well, I mean, what, how, how, how do you approach that? You've got all the explosions, you've got the gunfire. Do you have any particular tricks of how you're going to get these, these words on a page to actually form into a character that people can grasp? Um, lots and lots of drafts. You know, that that was the advice Al kept giving me was follow the character. And I kept raging against that. I wanted to make people different than who they were. And he was very smart and very calm and just said, follow the character. And that's how once we finally followed each of the characters instead of just one, you know, you finally get a, something that comes to a logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we one of us would make an off offhand comment about a character and all of a sudden it would become a central uh focus of the ending or something like that you know it was it was a lot of back and forth it was a lot of patience and and i think it, it's very rewarding i think it's my best book you know yeah. who's not going to say that about their book but i i think i really think it is i really was happy with how it held up when i went back to go over it again a I, year later i think it reads as your most confident book um oh. you know book when you sit and read it and think this guy knows what he's doing um, oh, thanks. Which, you know, a, a reader wants. <laughs> right. I mean, it's one of those great sayings. It's show all your work in math and hide all your work in writing. I'm going to steal that. So, no, please do. I stole it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the, you've got your, your teacher. Right. Um, who is in no way Dave White. No way at all. No, not at all. Uh-uh. No. Absolutely not. He's not an eighth grade language arts teacher you know (laughs) who's the exact same age as me and might happen to work in the same district that i work in (laughs) but he's i mean he's he's the point where you can start writing a story and you can fill the character later on with things that that make him you know very distant from yourself but that that's an in point for you when you're writing a story you've also got some some other very dark and and larger than life characters in the story, right? Frank. So it's it's revealed quite quickly that that Frank is not at all what either we or or, or your your teacher think. Right. The hook right. is he's he's a spy, and so the you know the story then it twists completely. Um, violence, nastiness, people die on a train, all of that. Right. Now that's that's yes. obviously that 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 character there is a point when you've then gone completely away from you know touchstones of of yourself and and of other books that you've written in the local area that's when you you're going off into a, a whole new realm in terms of creating this guy what were you what were you drawing from for that the inspiration for that the actually the inspiration for the whole story before it even became like working through my issues which i work with three people who have husbands or boyfriends 
who do very strange jobs. One was a microscope salesman. One, you know, like sold steel, you know, stuff that I never thought of as being that don't sound real to me. And they were always traveling like to random places like Korea or Russia, you know, or Switzerland, all these James Bond type locales. Mm-hmm. And I finally said to one of them, your boyfriend is a spy. And it kind of kind of as a joke, just teasing. And it kind of grew from there. For me, the difficulty in writing a spy would instantly be the to pitch it, you know, the the comic book character, the you know, the the Jack Bauer can can die a million times, come back to life and do whatever he wants kind of character. Or right. to sit down and think, what would a spy actually be like? But when I do that, sometimes I think the story's not going to be very interesting. I mean, you know, a spy's going to be walking around, carrying manila envelopes, having a few arguments, having a cup of tea, posting right. some mail. I think Frank kind of falls somewhere in between that uh, comic book spy and the the real thing, mm-hmm. I think. Um because there's so much that we don't know or isn't public about the, the espionage world. So you can pretty much make up anything. What I wanted to do with Frank was make him real in his head, have him have real emotions and thoughts and, and not be this unfeeling spot. I mean, at one point I thought about telling the story without his point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have hurt the book. I think, Frank becomes very believable when you get in his head, you know. Um, so I think there's that, and it makes him seem like a real character. So you kind of go with him when he does these, I don't want to say fantastic, but, you know, these these thrilling things in the story. And I think there was research and small details that sound, you know, sound real or sound like they fit or sound like he knows what he's talking about, you know, and, and just going on. When, when I was writing this, Blackwater was a big story. Uh, Department of Homeland Security, you know, had gotten involved in some things. And, and so there was enough out there in the news that I think I could take bits and pieces. The the torture in uh, Afghanistan mm-hmm. story had kind of come to light. So there was enough out there with waterboarding and stuff like that that you could pull information and kind of uh, add it to the character. And, and, you know, it sounds realistic. Mm-hmm. So... You know, you've got the, the the characters have then have then turned on on the readers' expectations. It's it's gone from one kind of a story headlong into another. We're, we're reaching a point now when we're, we're sort of you know the first third of the book, and then we're going to start tripping over spoilers if we go into too much. But there are, there are a few other things that um, I, I kind of want to try and talk about in general terms. Um, mm-hmm. Where when later on you, you you're again you're dealing with kind of a f- family issues as well as you know the the, the espionage. Um, mm-hmm. so you, you kind of balancing this where it's, it's, there's a family drama, but it's also high stakes. Um, which, which of the, of those was the more challenging one to get? The high stakes stuff. The, uh, cause it's not a world I know. I, I mean, I can see, you know, just in life, everybody knows dysfunctional families and, you know, that co- sort of drama and has seen that the, the high stakes stuff is so much to make it believable and not completely fantastical mm-hmm. is, you know, I'm, I've never, you know, uh, I've never held a hand grenade or fired a gun or anything like that. And, and that stuff took a lot of looking into and, and 
talking back and forth. And I think the family issues kind of came about more natural, especially once we got a handle on the characters. Mm-hmm. The family issues really came uh, a bit more naturally. Because I like I like the economy of it in that you, you're telling two stories at once. It's the same story, obviously, but because you've got these two completely different aspects to it, it's just the economy of, of it actually achieves a lot by just telling the two stories together, making it the one story. Um, that that some writers maybe trip above themselves by having to have you know like subplot A, subplot B, and then they've got all these cork boards while they're writing. But you've just got it's it's the same plot. It's just got two different angles to it. You can look at it one side; it's a family drama. You can look at it the other side, and it's it's you know. Jason Bourne. Yeah. What What were your influences in sitting down to to write the story? Um, you've talked about some of the the character specific things, um, but just generally in terms of the story itself, what were you drawing on? I mentioned the Coen Brothers, so there was there was that, and I always wanted to like we talked about the last time I was on the Do Some Damage podcast. Um, James Bond. I'm a huge James Bond fan, and I always kind of wanted to write my own James Bond story, mm-hmm. and you know I, that's what I started to do. Tried to fill it with. So, you know, Frank is James Bond, basically. And then to come at it from a a more realistic level with John, the teacher, and then the uh, female assassin, Christine, is actually was originally kind of a a antihero in a short story I wrote ages ago called The Long Road, where she she was a hitman. And I kind of took her and started playing with her and tried to turn her into more a Bond villain. You know, and then bring her back to being more realistic as well, which I think is what you you find a combination of the character from the short story, the Bond villain, and then just her own new character when you get into the the meat of it of the novel. Mm-hmm. So there was there was all sorts of inspirations, but basically I wanted to write a Bond novel. I think story. I think the comparison works quite well. Something that that they've tried to do many times in Bond, but they've also the, any time they've tried to do it, they've never quite quite achieved it for me. Is that that thing of of having the normal guy wander into the film? Um, but it's always, particularly, I'm thinking the sort of seventies and eighties, and it was done for comic effect. Um, yeah. yeah, and it, it 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 just never worked. Whereas you know, it's the mm-hmm. idea of, of what if you're the guy who sits down on you know the train or whatever next to James Bond? What what happens to your life from that moment on? Um, right, and I th- I think that's the kind of story this is, but. You're right about the comedic. It's always in the 70s and the 80s and the, the comedic interpretation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely, that's where I'm that this, your story here is, it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously not quite sitting down on the train next to James Bond. It's, it's a guy who kind of, he makes the wrong choice and, and really he embroils himself in it. Um, yeah. But he doesn't know that that's, he doesn't know he's doing it. Um, it, it is just, you know, Hitchcock, wrong place, wrong time, wrong guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I definitely had North by Northwest in my head when I was writing this as well. That's just going to lead to me thinking about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Why'd you do that? How, what does that have to do with North by Northwest? There's the the plane chase on uh, the mountain. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 Uh. See, all conversations <laughs> lead back to Indy. Um, yeah, pretty much. No, you, you definitely achieved it, I think, with, with this book. Um, is that an itch that you've scratched or is it something now that you're thinking oh, I've got a feel for how to do it I might return to the this kind of story or you know expand on it yeah I think there are more more stories with this these characters I <clears throat> I have a pitch 
kind of sitting on I hate to use the word for the phrase pitch, but I have a pitch kind of sitting on my computer um which follows up with some of these characters again uh that kind of came to me because my wife ran the new New York marathon mm-hmm. and uh I wanted to play with that, but I haven't started writing it yet it, so I guess in a way it's an itch that's scratched that I could come back to. There's a lot of stuff we want to talk about that we can't talk about right now because we want people to go out and read the book, um, you know, and and shout at certain bits and, you know, be surprised. Um, and then they can come back and then we can, you know, we'll talk about it in depth a bit more. Um, in terms of spoiling books and spoiling endings, um, do, do you think that, uh, that, that readers... Want authors to be doing that more? I mean, do you think that it's it's like the audio commentary on a, a DVD that there's there's a function for podcasts that you can kind of sit and actually get into the nitty gritty of why did you do this to that character? How did you do that? Why 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 did you end it on that 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 full stop? Yeah, I I think there's a ton of interest out there. I know for me in particular that would love to have a way to talk to an author and I see directors and especially comic book writers do this all the time where they can talk about the end of the book or, or the, the nitty gritty stuff of the book and break it down. Cause I think that's where the fun lies for after the book. And I think that's where the fun lies in getting interest for a TV series or getting interest for a comic book is that people start talking about this stuff and start getting other predictions and, and stuff going on. And talking about the spoilery stuff, and I think it works really well for TV and and comic books because there's always a new part of the story coming that you can't spoil. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it's hard with books. And I'd love to have a place to go where I could read the book, and when I was done with it, be able to talk to the author or or listen to the author talk about the certain aspects of the book. I know I'm sure Dennis Lehane has talked about. The end of Shutter Island and and Mystic River. Um, now, now that it's ten years later, you know. Yeah. But I think it's hard to to judge when you can do that and when the interest for that is going to uh, come up. I think that's why doing book clubs as an author and going and visiting with book clubs who've read your book um, that month is so much fun. It's it's interesting. I mean, you're releasing this obviously digitally. Yes. Um, is is there a temptation when you're doing that? You're not, you know, you're not bound by page counts. Um, you're not really bound by it being, you know, a book on a shelf or anything like that. Where you publish, you're saying it's got to fit into certain dimensions. Is there a temptation to 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 get around this in terms of of back matter in the book to to put in interviews at the back or or links to audio or something and say you know go and read the book first and then here's where I'm going to tell you about you know the scene that I really want to talk about or the character that I really want to talk about or you know this death scene that I want to get into okay I've never thought of that but that sounds awesome and now I want to do it and it also it, it kind of seems like this is the point when Authors, you know, we've all all been thinking for a long time that, you know, if only we could have what DVDs can have with with extras and with, you know, the 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 audio tracks and with the featurettes. And we're at a point when we can actually do that. Um, It's just it's probably going to be a bit of a headache in terms of figuring out how to do it. But we at this point, surely we have the technology to be able to to have the best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a way 
I mean, even if the, at the end of the book, for instance, the easy way I could think to do it is if at the end of the book I put a, a link that says, hey, now that you're done with this book, why don't you go listen to the Do Some Damage podcast part two where we actually discuss parts of the book if you want to get a deeper sense of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and then put a link to the, the podcast page or whatever. That would be the easy way to do it. But I don't know. I never really thought of that. It's a really cool idea. I think Back Matter itself would be the way to do it. Have, have actually, actually have it in the package. Um, yeah, that would be a written interview, you mean? Yeah, a written interview. Or even if, like... You know, I mean, there's, there's all points when we, we want to run out and tell the world about, oh, this is this scene that I've just done when I've just done this thing and I realised that if I do this, then it's brilliant. Um, we could we could write essays about it and shove it at the back of our books. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You're, you're a brilliant man, Jay Stringer. <laughs> so what we're kind of getting at here for, for the listeners is that they need to go out and they need to read this book because it's awesome. Thank you. And uh, it is your your best book. It's bit the burn after reading. Now that you've said it, I can totally see it. I mean, it's they they're very good companion pieces. I think, but mm-hmm. very different tones. Yeah. Um, very different kind of the, the the cause and effect, and certainly the ending. Yeah. Um, make no make no mistake that my book is a dark dark book. It's uh, not completely humorless, but it doesn't have as much humor as. As uh, it originally did, the jokes are there, but you've you've got to look for them. Yeah. Um, but and the, and the ending itself, I I like endings, even in big epic global stories in whatever it is, whether there's a hollow hollowed out volcano, whatever. Mm-hmm. I want a story that right at the end is going to give me a little emotional punch. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was Raiders of the Lost Ark. The arc opens. There's the big box made by the man in the sky that kills all the Nazis, but. The last How does scene... you know, Jay, I have to stop you here, since everybody's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and this has always been my huge question, and since you're such a fan, maybe you know. How does Indiana Jones know not to look at it? Uh, he's he's taking a leap of faith, and he's being humble before God. Well, why would he not look at, at it? Well, how does that make him humble? Wouldn't he have to kneel, even though he's tied up? Well, yeah, he, he can't kneel. Um, oh. But, but he, can, he, can, he can be humble. Um mm-hmm. Because that that just ties into his character arc, and obviously earlier in the the film, he's paying no respect to any of these things. He's just going and, and robbing graves, yeah. um, and then and then obviously he kind of refines his faith in archaeology, and and it's also you can assume his faith in God. Although they go and ruin that in the third film, because then he makes another leap of faith, and they expect you to think. Is he going to do it? Well, of course he's going to do it. We've already seen him do it in the first film. I mean, I know in in real life there's myths about the Ark that. If you see it, um, you'll die. Um, that is just some of the, you know, some of the crazy myths that are out there. Because um, let's mm. face it, it's about a box made by a man in a sky that kills people. Um, yeah, but he's yes. got nothing better. But <laughs> what the, the man in the sky? The man in the sky's got nothing better to do. So let me make this box. Yep. <laughs> but but that is that is far more believable and more acceptable than the fact that beings from another world might be able to build a spaceship. Right. Don't, don't put that in and, a film because the internet will go ape shit. Yes. Anyway, so, where was I? But see, see isn't this kind of cool? Like, to bring it back to what we are talking about, I know it's ten years later, but I think this is a cool discussion that, you know, people that are interested in the movie would love to hear Spielberg or, God forbid, George Lucas talk about, you know, 
mm-hmm. spoilers in the film to give you more a fuller, richer viewing experience. Absolutely. The funny thing, it's for years Lucas was saying to Spielberg, the fourth one's got to have aliens in it. The fourth one's got. I mean, there was there was drafts of Indiana Jones and the Saucer Men, Indiana Jones and the City of Gods, and every draft would have aliens in it. And Spielberg kept turning around at every point on this twenty-year journey, saying, "I've done aliens to death. I'm not mm-hmm. doing any more aliens." And then at one point, Lucas came up and went, "Okay, they look like aliens, but they're actually creatures from another dimension." And apparently, <laughs> that was enough for Spielberg to just go, "Yes, got it." Yeah. Where was I going with this? Anyway, what I was getting to originally was they open the arc and there's the big scene and all the destruction, but the film itself ends on that little emotional one-two between Indy and Marion of, you know, the fools, they don't know what they've got there. I know what I've got here. Come on, I'll buy you a drink. Yeah. Um, and that's how you end a story. It doesn't matter how much explosion you've had. You've got to have some, some emotional little punch to it. And your book's got a punch to it. Yeah, I think I think that it's it's a well earned punch as well because I think that's what it boils down to. That's what people relate to are characters. Mm-hmm. You know, I can end the book on a big explosion, but there's not going to be any any sort of closure. You know, any sort of emotional uh, uh, link to it. I I think movies that end with the and I'm going to get killed here because of Doctor Strange Love, but <laughs> movies that end or books that end where everything blows up kind of leave me hanging yes i i don't have that link to them as i do when i love the character and that character has that closing moment yes yeah it's it's, it's got to, it's got to come back to the personal i think and it, it can sound a bit like a formula but i think it's just formula because as as readers and viewers we relate to emotion whether we you know whether the viewer sometimes realizes it or not and that's what they need to hook into yeah. um and you've got to bring it back to that yeah, because um, everybody has emotions. Not everybody is, you know, stared down the face of a shark charging at you with a, a gas tank in its mouth. This is true. This is true. Yeah, but those so, of us that have, you know, it's it's a thrilling experience. It sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that brings it back to what I was saying earlier on of how you've managed to kind of straddle two stories. You've got some some dark family drama. Um, that people can get into if if that's their thing, and then you've also got you know the big intrigue and, uh, and espionage stuff um, for the people who want to see explosions um, and lots and lots of guns. Yes, um, and you've managed to balance the two throughout the story, which I think is a really good achievement. Um, what we need to do is to let people read the book, um, right? And then if they want, join in the discussion, so then we can actually talk about specific scenes um yes. we, can, we can get people to ask you know i think there's there's two or three key scenes that we both want to talk about um right there's, there's going to be stuff that you really want to be able to talk about it'd be good to get listeners and, and readers at the website to actually be able to come back to you and let's see if we can make something like this work in terms of getting this conversation going in terms of showing that this is how books can can exist now with with authors getting to to join in that conversation we can Put a post up, a open thread on, do some damage that we can link to on Twitter and Facebook every once in a while, and see if people want to comment on it, and mm-hmm. and, and and make sure that everybody knows that it's it's spoiler driven. So if you haven't read the book, don't check out the comment thread. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I would then, love, I would love for this to work because it is, as you said, films do it, TV does it, and we we both like comic books, and comic books basically lives on this. Comic books give away their story months before it comes out, and people still go out and read it. Absolutely. So we'll come back and we'll get the conversation going, and we'll we'll get into that that nasty scene. Um, yes. I'll talk. People will then be able to understand the kick that I'm talking about at the ending and and the family drama, and we can mm-hmm. actually open it up. Um, and do something interesting with it. So, yeah. um, let's tell people what they can buy again. There's uh, there's more sinned against, right? On Kindle and Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Nook and all that. With a, a fantastic cover, I just have to say, by John Horner Jacobs. Uh, you can get that um, from from the Amazons and on all of the, the methods you've suggested. Right. Uh, and there's this shiny new book that we really want to go into more detail about, uh, Witness to Death. Yep, same place. I need to come up with a good channel. Yeah, so thank you very much.